360 staples. There's no reason to play this in 2021. This set has nothing for cute. No good black planes walkers. Just play good cars. Garbage tears. Why aren't you playing chain lightning? Auto include at 540. Boros has no good cars. Cut all the best. Better cards at two mana. Ties to doom blade. Best in slide. It's a pain slayer. Maybe at 720. There are many more powerful options. It's 2021. You cast a spell. In response, I say... Hey, friend. Nice spell. This is Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, tech support extraordinaire Maddox. It's not by choice, but I do my best. I do want to share my favorite story of your tech support for your family. Your parents, especially your mother, not not in love with technology, not her, not her first love in life. I think and that's sometimes- pretty fair to say. She struggles a little bit. Sometimes gets a little confused with things. And uh, do you want to tell the story or should I tell the story of the time she called to report that I believe it was her keyboard wasn't working? Yeah, I think it's it's really important that you understand that I'm trying to debug this problem over the phone. I can't see what she's doing, but she's very insistent that the problem is her keyboard is broken. So I walk through all of the t- typical debugging steps. You know, what do you see on the screen? Do you see anything in this corner of the screen? Is this particular light on? It goes on for... I don't know how long you could possibly imagine this going on for. At least 15 minutes. Guess what the problem was in the end? I know, so I won't spoil it. Well, turns out the computer was off the whole time. Computer was off, and she had just never really... I mean, modern computers, you don't have to shut them down that often, and so the computer had never been off, so the way she would wake it would be to press a key on the keyboard, and the computer would wake up. So it's, it's completely natural. I can sympathize totally yeah, with your mother's 100%, point. 100%, you know, yeah. She's like, the keyboard's not doing the thing the keyboard always does. Every day, I come to the computer, I hit the space bar, and the computer turns on. Today, the keyboard is broken. Yep. I mean, I... It's a funny joke, but also it really is interesting just to think about how someone can have a completely different mental model for how things work and or a completely just different way of framing and, and talking about an idea, which which to me, that specific story really stands out. It's just whenever something seems like somebody doesn't understand something or they're just thinking about something differently, I just try and empathize as much as I can and put myself into the, their shoes. It's also a good insight into just how difficult any kind of technical support is. It's really complicated. I also, you know, people probably 
have heard if you did any kind of technical support over the phone with a company or something that one of the things they'll always ask you to do first is unplug the thing and then plug it back in. Whatever you're having a problem with, unplug it, plug it back in, which it is possible for some machines to store charges and capacitors and stuff such that unplugging it for a certain amount of time can actually reset stuff. But for the vast majority of cases, the reason they ask you to do that is because the industry has learned that asking somebody, hey, dummy, is your VCR plugged in, gets people real mad. But if you say, can you unplug it and plug it back in and give the person the out to say, oh, yeah, and they go to look at the plug, it's actually unplugged. They plug it in and say, oh, it worked, but I unplugged it and plugged it back in. Thank you for your great help. Uh, it's just so many layers of complexity in doing any kind of technical customer support, which I, that little keyboard story is one of my favorite compact examples of just how difficult it can be. I will say you're you're totally right, and I I really do empathize empathize with uh, people that are doing phone support for technical things, and and I think it's also about that restarting things about just putting things in a known state so we know where we're starting from. Right. However, I think it is unacceptable the degree to which they do this. <laughs> I, I again like I have so much empathy for these people. I know they have a hard job. I do. I, I know all what you're saying. Anthony, you want the steps. cheat code. You I want the code to code. say, look, I, want, I know I want what I'm doing. I want the secret word that I can say, yes, yeah. I have restarted all of my devices. I have tested this on multiple devices. It is this part of the technology stack that is the issue. Ooh, I feel, I feel literally, I feel, I have literal panic just thinking about the experiences where, you know, I go through literally the third person in the line of, uh, the line of fire in the Comcast support and be told again, well, um, we're going right, to restart your modem. Can you turn off your computer? It's like, I have done these steps for the last two. Go ahead and blow on the cartridge and, uh, give it, give that a few seconds and let me know how that performs then. Yeah. I wish you could just whisper like, Ada Lovelace, and they would just put you right through. They'd be like, "All right, great. You know the oh, secret that's word. The perfect password. Allow me to patch you through to somebody that also understands technology. Because I've tried before to have that conversation with a support person. I'm like, look, friend on the phone. I am. I am a. a I don't want to waste your person. time. I have. I have already followed the script you're about to give me. I don't want to waste your time. You don't want to waste my time. Let me just go ahead and say that I've unplugged it. I've plugged it back in. I've reset the router. I've done all the things. I promise you that I have a little bit of technical knowledge and i've identified where this problem is let's let's get to the lower level problem solving stuff please oof man i had an issue <sighs> the other day and after a long time on the phone with one support person they put me or I, I don't know i don't know what happens i just get a new voice on the phone hello how can we help you and i i kind of lost it which for me meant i, I was just like uh do you have any context for what's happening <laughs> and they're just like <laughs> yeah to be clear <laughs> I think repeat listeners will know that you're a very kind and gentle man. You losing it is uh, is probably a pretty mild experience. <laughs> me losing asking it was, us- was literally asking, do you actually have no context? Let me take a deep breath. Let's start over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you losing it is asking a like 2% passive aggressive question <laughs> of the person on the other line. It was very... Fr- I'm, this is... We shouldn't have... Now I'm frustrated. <laughs> well, the thing that frustrates me about that whole thing is that the person who's doing... The customer support oh, no. is, is in a system, system that is failing them. Yeah. Like, it yeah. is the system that is the problem. They are being failed by it, and I am being failed by it, and we are here mutually being failed by this system, and we yeah. are both disempowered to at all break the pattern and, and fix it for ourselves, because the system, uh, you know, let's not get too down a rabbit hole about capitalism, Anthony. We, we can save that for a bonus That's, episode I feel like we're maybe. circling around that drain. You know, all roads lead to capitalism. It's like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, but it's like, in America, it's like one and a half degrees of capitalism. Identify almost any problem, and it comes down to capitalism. But that is for another time. I don't think we should go down that rabbit hole today. 
Your comment, though, about your mother having a totally different frame of reference for her technical problems, I think is a good little, a good little segue into what our main topic is going to be today, Anthony, because I think today we should talk about people's frame of reference for Cube, and really, I just want to empower everybody listening to make the Cube that will make them the happiest, to make the Cube of their dreams. And I have a couple, I have some things I want to talk about uh, to this point, and so we'll get to that main topic. But first, we're going to do a pack one, pick one from a listener submitted Cube, except... It's actually not a listener submitted cube this week because there is a new cube on Magic Online, the Nega Cube. We're going to do a pack one, pick one from that cube because I know a lot of you are probably playing it. So perhaps a brief take on the environment from Anthony and I will give you some uh, some help in your drafts. The Nega Cube, Anthony, is actually something that I and uh, I know Jet Jet Crowdis contributed to Lucky Paper have talked quite a bit about wanting to make a cube like this. The 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 restriction of the Nega Cube is that it is a cube that consists only of cards that are not included in other, I believe it's just Magic Online cubes. So the card pool is unrestricted, except it can't be a card that's in the Magic Online Vintage Cube, the Magic Online Legacy Cube. There might still be a Modern Cube. It just can't be in any of those lists. Those ones are immediately eliminated from contention, and whatever's left is what they're allowed to pull from, which I think is a very cool limitation for a cube. And for a long time, you know, if you have, if you own a cube for a few years, you tend to collect a nice big stack of cards you've cut from your cube maybe a lot of them you foiled out before you cut them if you're, if you're like me and the idea of just saying i wish i could do, play with these cards still in just a slightly different environment is something i considered for a long time but just getting all the sleeves and stuff too overwhelming so i never bothered doing it yeah it's an interesting uh, restriction and there's also a, a fair amount of territory exploring this uh if i'm trying to find on the cube map right now but i know there's a whole cluster that i found before of all the cubes that are just the cards that are already in one of these particular uh, online cubes. I'm going to read the pack from this cube, and then Anthony will give us his hottest, spiciest takes of which cards you should be pack one, pick one The pack is Elysian Caryatid, Nadir's Nightblade, Viridian Emissary, Dracuseth Maul of Flames, Grafted Wargear, Whisper Blood Liturgist, Crag Crown Pathway slash Timber Crown Pathway, Goblin Bombardment, Blood Soaked Champion, Mortician Beetle, Cataclysmic Gear Hulk, Temple of Triumph, Vivid Grove, Body Double, and Asika's Chariot. What's jumping out of you, Anthony? So for context, uh, I'm not a Magic Online player, so I don't have a ton of experience with these specific cubes. And I do think this is, maybe you agree or disagree, I think it is trying to emulate still a lot of the playstyle of the Legacy and Vintage cubes in terms of still playing the, the most powerful cards and strategies it can, with that exception. That is my impression. Certainly the way it's been contextualized, I have not seen another design philosophy espoused for it other than it can't play these cards. And I feel like it's the exception that proves the rule, right? If you're saying you can't play these most powerful cards are in the Vintage Cube, you're probably still trying to play the best cards you can that are not in that Vintage Cube. So it's really interesting what's left. It's like we don't have the one-mana elves, but we do have these two-mana either elves or otherwise sort of ramp creatures. We don't necessarily have all the most powerful aggressive red one-drops, but we do have some aggressive black cards. So I wonder how, how much uh, black can really be the aggressive color with cards like a Blood Soak Champion here. I think that the things that actually stand out to me pretty strongly, though, are Asika's Chariot, just for being an incredibly powerful card. I know it's one of your favorites that you've always loved. Yeah, since day one. I'm on record of loving that card. Grafted War Gear, which is just kind of a broken card that's very flexible and can fit into every deck. 
And then I think the last thing that stands out to me is Vivid Grove. These are lands that maybe, if you're familiar with a lot of the Vintage Legacy cubes, you haven't seen that much because they're definitely a, a tier below, like a lot of these cards. But they basically give you two charge counters and you get two shots of making one man of every color. So they're actually pretty powerful fixing, especially if you're trying to splash and this is in a base green deck. So those are the three things that stand out to me. I think if I wanted to win Grafted War Gear, especially from what I've heard about the way these cubes play, and more importantly, the way that people tend to draft them, uh, just drafting an aggressive deck is pretty effective. But I, I might just be taking a Seeker's Chariot here. Just to read these cards, uh, Seeker's Chariot's new. I think everyone knows what that does. It makes some cats, make more cats than you attack. <laughs> Great. Grafted War Gear is three generic mana for an equipment that gives the equipped creature plus three, plus two, has equipped zero, which is fabulous, the one downside is when Grafted War Gear becomes unattached from a permanent, you must sacrifice that permanent, which I gotta say that downside doesn't often come up. It basically means that once you've committed the War Gear to a creature, you have to just jam that creature until it dies in combat or whatever before you can move the War Gear. Occasionally, they have a bounce spell for the War Gear, and that feels pretty bad <laughs> that, that that can't happen. Oh, yeah. But for the most part, it just means that you're committed to putting it on a creature and not bouncing it around, you know, not attacking with one creature, then moving it to also have it on blocks. But the stat boost for a three drop with equip zero is really really strong on grafted war gear and then you mentioned vivid grove yeah it's just like end of the battlefield tapped land that produces green and twice can produce mana of any other color which my overall impressions of this format from looking at the cube list and from hearing some other players in our play group that do play magic online talking about it is that it is a format that is kind of dominated by greedy decks for the most part and because of that the sort of meta the meta choice, as you mentioned, Anthony, is maybe to try to play something more proactive because so many players are going to be playing three to four color greedy decks or, you know, decks that don't cast anything till turn three because they're playing these big expensive spells. So I think every card you pointed out is entirely reasonable. I will say, I think one of the card pools that suffers the most from this restriction is mana fixing because we don't have access to very much untapped mana fixing at all because the shocks and the duels and the pain lands like a lot of these things are already accounted for in the in the main cubes for that reason the pathway jumps out of me a little bit i know it's more committal because it's just red or green as opposed to vivid grove which is pretty open fixing but the amount of untapped fixing in this cube is significantly more limited and so if i was taking a land it would probably be the crag crown pathway the uh, the red green pathway i know how you feel about tapped lands I, I do I do feel a certain a certain type of way about tap lands and to the point of the meta analysis of this cube, I think if you're trying to be the bigger greedier deck against all the other bigger greedy decks, then it's not as important because it doesn't seem like tempo is going to be the deciding factor in most of those games. It seems like having the better cards is going to be the deciding factor and being able to cast them. And so if I'm just trying to outvalue my opponent, then I would much rather have something like Vivid Grove or honestly even a Temple. But if I end up playing a more proactive deck and my goal is to go under all these greedy decks and leave them dead with their fours and five drops in hand, then the pathway becomes a lot more appealing. Yeah, that's fair. But for me, I'm just taking the Grafted War Gear. I'm actually really surprised to see this in this cube because I would have expected this to still be in the Vintage Cube or at least yeah, the Legacy Cube. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and maybe I misunderstand some detail of the stipulation here, but uh, that card to me is... You know, it, it's great if we end up in an aggressive deck because it upgrades any dinky little creature to a huge threat. At least, under most circumstances, a four-power threat. You can put it on something with keywords like flying or lifelink or menace. It becomes an enormous problem immediately. It turns any creature in your entire deck into a huge problem. But also, 
it's really good in those grindy, like mid-rangey mirrors because oftentimes you end up kind of in a board stall where you've both got four fours and five fives or whatever you don't want to trade in combat. And just being able to turn one of your creatures into a huge creature means that you can start swinging in with them, which I think oftentimes breaks those stalls anyway. So no matter what we end up doing, I'm really happy with Warrior, and it is colorless. So that really stands out in this pack for me and is, is my pick by a pretty big margin. I think that's fair. I I think I'm still uh, swayed by the cat wagon, but... I think that's probably the wrong pick. The cat wagon, I think, is the next. If we are going to play that value game of we're just going to try to go toe to toe with all these big decks that are casting three and four and five mana spells, then I think chariot is probably one of the best cards to do that in the environment. It's going to be able to break those stalls just by generating so much value in and of itself that I think it will be very valuable. So I think it's entirely defensible. And if War Gear weren't in this pack, I would probably be on that still over the lands. And then after those two, I would be on the lands as well. And I'd probably speculate on that pathway and just see if I could do something fast. The other thing that's interesting about it in a lot of cubes, and, and I suspect in this cube as well, is unlike playing it in limited where it's basically just, you know, it makes the cats and it fuels itself. And if you lose those tokens, you're kind of out of luck. I think there's a good chance you actually end up being able to make more and higher powered tokens and get even extra value out of it. Yeah, I agree. I think you'll have some time to set up value engines like that. And I think removal is enough at a premium here that you'll be able to combine this with other cards that make more powerful tokens without being disrupted by your opponent in a lot of situations. The other card I don't think we can leave this pack without mentioning is Dracuseth, which is a big dragon that I'm pretty sure just says if you untap with it, you win the game. It's definitely not where I want to start, especially in a format that I'm not super familiar with, with a huge seven mana spell. But I think this card is kind of ridiculous, and, and I wouldn't be super surprised to, to hear a more experienced player tell me this is the pick. It definitely is ridiculous, and it, it probably entirely comes down to, A, how viable, quote-unquote, Baneslayers are in this format. Because here you're spending seven mana on a giant creature that doesn't do anything till you get to attack with it. So, I mean, it, it blocks if they can't remove it, but... It doesn't do anything guaranteed until you get to attack with it. And when you do attack, I mean, so this is just four red, red, red for a legendary creature dragon. It's a 7-7 seven, seven with flying. The important line of text is when it attacks, it deals four damage to any target and three damage to each of up to two other targets. So in a lot of situations, so it's going to be a plague wind or just kills your opponent right there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it either, it's either two a really huge plague choices. wind or just, you know, attack for they have to be other targets. So you could deal a total of just 11 if with an unblocked Dracuseth on attack, four to your opponent and seven from the Dracuseth itself, while also incidentally bolting two other things. It, it's truly nuts. So I think it depends on the viability of Baneslayers if you're planning on casting it or the potential of cheating it into play. Like this might be in this environment a somewhat appealing reanimation target or similar. And I haven't looked in detail at the list to figure out if that is supported. So for me, it's a little narrow. Even if I'm playing a, a ramp deck, and even if it's a slow environment, I still want very, very, very few seven mana spells. And so I'm not happy to take that super early. If I expect to be in a deck that's going to cast this, I'd honestly just start on Elysian Caryatid, which is the two mana ramp creature, and just say, I'll cast Dracuseth or some similar seven drop as if I get it later. But uh, it's certainly, it's, it's got the most raw power level of any card in this pack. If you get to attack with it, your win percentage, I think, probably goes through the roof. I mean, we could uh, take the Dracuseth and hope to wheel Whisper, which is a four-mana reanimation spell with a lot of hoops. If only Whisper gave haste. Giving haste to Dracuseth would be pretty chill. Okay, that's the pack. I hope for those of you drafting the Nega Cube, that perspective is maybe a tiny bit helpful, although Anthony's caveat is very important. Uh, I have not, nor has he, and we will not play the Nega Cube ourselves. So tell us how it goes and if you think our perspective on the environment is correct. 
If you want to have us do a pack one, pick one of your cube on Lucky Paper Radio, just send a link to your cube to mail at luckypaperco along with your name and pronouns. I think this discussion we're about to have would be a lot better if you and I disagreed on this on the following subject, and I don't think we do at all. And I think we're actually maybe in the minority of the overall, at least maybe the more vocal cube community in not seeing in seeing eye to eye on this. I think maybe we have a different opinion from most people that are out there thinking about and playing cubes. But I want to talk about the idea of cube as a monolithic format, which is how it is often presented by people in other contexts. This is, of course, the source of our rivalry with uh, with limited resources. They did an episode on cube where they talked extensively about what cube is, what cube feels like, and kind of presented one very specific way that they thought cube was meant to be. And that way was this power-optimized vintage legacy cube. And, uh, you know, I mean, they said things like, finally, the arena cube actually feels like a cube because before it didn't have enough powerful cards Ooh, that, in it. Now it actually really feels like a cube. Twitch. Yeah. And, th- I mean, they are not alone, and I am not... I, do, I have no desire to cherry-pick specific examples of this, but if you look around the community to other podcasts, to YouTube channels, to articles there is a very prevalent portrayal of cube as this monolithic thing. Like cube is about playing the most powerful cards for a very long time, actually. And this actually got updated a couple months ago, but for a very long time, if you Google like MTG cube, one of the first results is the Gamepedia wiki page for MTG cube. And I think the, the description of cube on that page, even for a long time said cube is a custom draft environment, usually consisting of the most powerful cards in magic's history. Like it even had that in the definition of cube. So this is a very common thing. Before we talk about why I think it's a problem that that's how we talk about Cube in the public discourse, why do you think that is, Anthony? What are your hypotheses? Hypotheses. What are your hypotheses about why why people talk about Cube like that so so narrowly? I mean, I think the the most obvious thing is just that that is the most visible thing. The MTGO Cube is very much designed in that way, and that's how most people are introduced to it and experience it and see it. So. I think that's just a huge force to fight against. I think more broadly, though, and maybe the reason why that started that way is there are a lot of different sort of value propositions to why to play cube at all. You know, it's for some players, it can be a way to just like have a a draft format that they can play repeatedly for free. For some, it can be because they want these really niche cards, which are just, you know, not good enough for a certain constructed format, uh, have a home for them. But I think the biggest reason for so many players is they just want to play with the best, most powerful and most exciting cards that they have the, the most fun memories and experience with. We've speculated before about why it seems so many people gravitate to high power levels in cube design and we have i think we have a lot of good potential explanations for it but honestly one we didn't we haven't talked about in the past which i think might be a very strong reason is that designing a cube is really hard and if the mtgo vintage cube is the most visible cube i think it's entirely natural that many 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 cube designers just emulate that because there's a lot of years of history and work that have gone into that cube and even though I personally don't love some of the design decisions made from my subjective stance as a player. I think the MTGO Cube is enormously successful at succeeding in its own design goals, which is making a bunch of people excited to play Cube on Magic Online. And having that monument to that success to just kind of emulate, and obviously everyone has their own take on things. You know, they'll take the Vintage Cube and they'll cut the cards they don't like, add the cards they do. They'll tweak the archetypes they think are 
don't don't play to their play preferences and, and modify them. But I think one of the reasons that we end up there is not just that people like playing with powerful cards or think it's more fun to play with these, you know, really pushed cards, but actually that designing a cube at any other power level is so much harder and so fewer people have done it. Yeah, that's definitely true. There's a lot less precedent. But I think that sort of micro scale, or maybe more important way to to come at that, is just that we we do carry a lot of our card evaluations and and value judgments from other formats. If I'm experienced at playing limited and I'm used to saying, well, this card is good and this card is bad, because that is practical. Like there are objective ways that we right. can talk about the quality of cards. And then I come to designing a cube, it's really hard to shed that and say, well, this individual card being good or bad doesn't actually have the same impact when we're talking about designing an environment where all of those values are relevant. We've talked before about power creep, and I think that there's this weird phenomenon I've been trying to figure out if there's a name for, um, but this sort of like locality or, or nearby fallacy where you're like, it doesn't actually matter if I make a swap in my cube that makes one individual type of card more powerful, or if I just made every other card slightly less powerful. Those would be like this exact same change on the resulting environment. But it's really, really hard to pay attention to the whole system at once. When you're talking about, when you're having a conversation about one individual card, it's so much easier to say, well, we want the cube to be better. Let's make that individual card better. That is the correct way to balance it. I mean, in a practical concern, it'd be really hard to say, we want to make this archetype better. Let's deliberately nerf every other one by by 2%. That's an extremely challenging thing to do. So I think there's this really, sort of really weird hard. confluence of just the way we sort of are taking our experience of evaluating cards from other formats and the fact that it's really hard to just keep that entire forest in your brain at one time. Yeah, super challenging. I don't entirely agree with what you just said. I think in the very abstract theoretical, you're right, right? You're basically saying that you know, you have these two points in your cube list, like, you know, your your white aggro deck and your, you know, green mid-range deck, and the way they relate to each other isn't balanced in your opinion, right? Maybe the green aggro deck is always winning. You're saying that the difference between making the green aggro deck worse versus making the white aggro deck better is effectively a wash, right? Like, the, the relative placement of those decks to each other and to the rest of the environment could be the exact same at two different power levels. The only reason I don't think that's entirely true is that there are a lot of aspects of the game that are immutable. You start with seven cards in your hand. You play one land a turn. You have 20 life. These things don't change. And so I think as you move things around relative to one another, the fact that they are still tethered to these constants does mean that things do fundamentally shift. Like you can't just move the entire line up or down because you end up making things totally irrelevant because they're actually tied to these core immutable constants in the game. And the, 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 most, the best example I can give is just aggro, right? Like if you say, to over dramatically oversimplify it, if you say that like, I have two aggro decks in my cube and they're based on playing aggressive one drops. And then I have the mid-range decks and they you know pretty much start playing threats at three or whatever, right? If you said, let's just move those up, right? Let's just make the aggro decks play two drops and the mid-range decks play four drops or whatever. I don't think that that relationship would still be maintained because the difference between playing a threat on turn one and another threat on turn two or maybe even two more threats on turn two as an aggro deck hinges on your taking advantage of the fact that you play one land a turn, taking advantage of the fact that you start at 20 life to try and get your opponent dead before their spells are live. And if you don't start till turn two and you can't play two threats a turn until you have four mana, you're going to be so far behind that your opponent's going to be able to catch up with their four drops before you've gotten their life total low enough to actually take advantage of that. 
and I think that same metric applies to all the other kinds of decks. That's just the most obvious example of how we can see that just moving the line around, I think, does fundamentally change how decks work. It doesn't just move it. I think you're partially right. I definitely disagree. You said some aspects of the game are immutable. I, I'm not going to agree with that. We can definitely okay, sure. <laughs> you can yes, you can change you can change rules. I mean, we have both design cubes that have changed the rules of the game. So I don't mean that you're forbidden and the police will come and knock on your door and arrest you and take you away to magic prison if you uh, change your starting life total or whatever. But for the vast majority of cube designers, they aren't modifying the rules. What they're trying to do is design a cube within the existing magic rule set. And I think in that context, moving these things around is not. Not as easy as maybe you make it sound. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if anybody has ever designed like a custom format where they change the starting life total. Do you think that could be successful? No, sounds bad. I don't think I don't think people would would be down with that. That's just too weird. The other thing I'd push back on is that I think you might just be overstating it a little bit. Like I I do agree that things don't always scale the same. You know, for the same reason that uh, you can't just well, this doesn't make any sense to anybody but me, but you can't just scale up an insect and say, well, now it works. Like, there's a reason elephants have thicker legs than bugs for their proportion. <laughs> that's uh, not a bad... Yes, that's a very narrow, but a very good metaphor, Anthony. That'll, for those that'll of you work that for understand, somebody. That understand, you know, how oxygen moves through membranes and the structure of animals and exoskeletons and endoskeletons. That will make a well, lot the, of sense. The important part is just that as you're scaling a thing, different dimensions of it scale differently, and the, the two-dimensional... Sure, the two-dimensional oxygen issue doesn't scale the same as the gravity issues or whatever. But I do think there is a tremendous amount of flexibility within that, even that like relatively high-powered environments where you can scale things a good amount before you really start running into drastic changes. And I also think that you can account for a lot of those scaling issues. So I definitely had this experience with my own cube operating at a much, much lower power level, where I realized I couldn't just add one to the mana cost. That didn't really function, because... Like you said, the, the, the four mana Wrath being bumped up to five mana was a much smaller addition than adding a one mana to a one drop. So it really took yeah. sort of like scaling up Doubling the, the, the more mana expensive cost things. Doubling the mana versus increasing it by only right. 25%. By more. So yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that there is still a lot of flexibility, but it does take a lot of work to sort of figure out where those, those issues and how to balance those scaling issues. And that is the work to me of cube design and i have no desire to in any way gatekeep cube design if you want to copy a cube and change one card and call yourself a cube designer i as far as i'm concerned you are a cube designer right every anybody that's out there curating a cube with any any degree of interest whatever you're all cube designers but i do think there is a lot of people that either lack the the play group or the interest uh to like play test extensively enough to like figure out if a radically different deck can work or they're just not interested in spending a bunch of time playing games that might be unfun because you're testing something and might end up falling flat on its face and you don't want to like spend time doing that and i think this big group of people that ends up making what are essentially and i count my main cube among this list for the most part like my main cube started as well, it kind of started as a bunch of Jake I had in binders that was trying as much as possible to emulate the MTGO Legacy Cube, more or less. And over time, my card collection grew, and it got closer and closer to the MTGO Legacy Cube. And then I started to get more of my footing as a cube designer and got a little more confident in pushing away things I didn't like and actually moving a little further from it. But my, my story with my main cube is very much the story I'm describing, which is that I didn't have 
a play group that was going to play twice a week every week so that I could dramatically change things and see how they played and get feedback. I wanted to build a cube that I knew would be fun. I knew that people like these kinds of cubes. I'd heard it talked about a bunch, how everyone loves these kinds of powerful cubes. And so I leaned on that basically to make a lot of the design decisions for me. Yeah, and, and all of that, like the way that you engage with your play group is really important. And so if part of your motivation is saying, I want to play these high-powered cards because I know that's what's going to get my other players to actually play this cube rather than just playing modern or whatever, that's a real goal. I think it's just important to have yeah, that, that's that perspective entirely and be explicit about it. I mean, what, what you're saying is we don't want to tell anybody that by designing a cube in a certain way, they're doing something wrong. In fact, the opposite, we want to say there are so many right ways to design a cube. And if we can just uh, adjust our language and the way that we talk about it a little bit, we can just be a little bit more open to, you, you know, all the many projects that we could work on and the many projects that other people that are looking for a place to talk about different cube designs uh, can, can really find a place to have those discussions. Yeah, and where I was really going with that is that I, that's a totally valid way to design a cube, but I think it's a way that maybe the majority of cube designers have made their cube. They started with the cube they liked, they tweaked it basically to make it more in line with their tastes or their playgroup tastes, and that's totally valid. But I do think that the aggregate of so many cube designers working in that way, and we should cite the cube map here. The cube map was so revelatory for me because, you know, it finally, I'm a very visual person, right? So being able to visually see how all of the cubes on Cube Cobra relate to one another, clustering group in different sections, and see this kind of large landmass that represents what is roughly modern legacy vintage power optimized cubes to some degree, and see that kind of branch off and you know bleed out into other kinds of restrictions and limitations and design philosophies. It was it was big for me to actually start to grasp the the scale of of the cube world. And I would encourage anybody that hasn't looked at it to go check it out and and have that same experience for yourself and realize how much there is out there, how much diversity there is in cube. But I do yeah, think I, that... I assume everybody that's listening has already seen the cube map, but if you haven't, uh, what this is is a project where we've taken literally every single cube listed on Cube Cobra with some asterisks, go listen to the end of the episode or whatever, and plotted it in two-dimensional space where the closer the cubes are to each other, the more cards they share. So it's just based on cards that are shared between cubes. And yeah, I mean, what we really were kind of hoping we would see and what we have seen is that there is just a tremendous, tremendous amount of diversity in the way that people approach designing cubes. While there is a tremendous diversity, there is also the, the tremendous diversity we see on the cube is at odds with the kind of homogenizing language that I'm talking about here. And this for is everything sure. from from people saying like, you know, even just small comments, like someone tweeting like, this card's great for cube. It's like, what does great for cube mean? <laughs> like, you're just saying this is another very powerful card that a lot of cube designers are likely to include because a lot of cube designers are playing at the highest power level. Like, it that homogenizing language, I think, has a very... I don't want to overstate it, right? Like we're 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 citing this problem in this like you know very niche fan made format with no competitive play, no stakes. Like it it's only a problem in that I think it in the aggregate all of these cube designers that are essentially modifying uh, a powerful cube environment to suit their tastes, but not exploring other kinds of things. I think it has the effect of giving the impression. That is the only way you can make a power-optimized cube, that other things would not be viable. And I don't believe that for a moment. I mean, having worked on a lot of cubes at this point, many of them quite powerful, I, I'm firmly convinced that there are lots of strategies that could work in an otherwise you know, similar legacy vintage power-optimized cube that people just have not tried, have not proven, have not taken the time to test and tweak and optimize so they are actually competitive. And... As a result, I think a lot of people feel 
hemmed in and they say things like, oh, well, when are we going to get some some white cards that are actually interesting for Cube? Or when are we going to get some good black four drops? Or when are we going to get finally good Boros cards for Cube? And it's like, uh, all of that always rubs me the wrong way. Like it, it bristles me a little bit to hear people talk about Cube that way because any problem you identify with with this monolithic idea of cube that exists, like if you're pointing at it and saying like, well, what cube's problem is, is we don't have enough discard spells or cube's problem is we don't have enough good Boros aggro cards. Or, you know, I've heard people talk about the quote unquote Naya problem, which is basically that there are no good red, green, green, white, or white, green, gold cards. And that's a big problem. Like all of these problems, if you're describing that about the monolithic cube and that applies to your cube, I would say that you should see that as a challenge to and an opportunity for you to redesign your cube to make that not a problem anymore and not a failing of wizards or whoever for not printing cards that will solve this problem for you essentially. I mean the, the I think the real issue with that kind of framing of an of an issue is that you're asking for something that's kind of weird and doesn't matter to any other format. So, I mean, we can imagine when Wizards is designing cards, they're trying to design every card for lots of different formats, or, you know, at least every set. So some of the cards are going to be relevant in Modern, some will be relevant in Legacy, which, you know, I know they spend a ton of time thinking about what the Legacy metagame looks like. and <laughs> Very focused on that. <laughs> and Standard and Limited. And so they want in each of those environments there to be a balance where you can play any color and feel like you know, not feel like an idiot. You can show up and, and win some games with it. When we're talking about cube design, and we have literally the, the pool of all cards ever printed, including cards that you... 22,000 cards or whatever. And, and cards that you literally can't play in any other format. If you want to play the conspiracies or the uncards, you absolutely can. What you're asking is, uh, Wizards, please make sure that that sort of skyline, that the like, absolute peak in all of these colors and all of these different kinds of cards is balanced as well. And they're just not thinking about that balance because they shouldn't be for any other format. And if they don't, what if they do just print a bunch of new, really broken white cards? Suddenly there's just a new peak. And and we have the flexibility to say, well, rather than feeling entitled and requesting from wizards that they better print better cards to balance this this weird subset of cards, we can instead say, well, let's just like take this color down a notch and get things in balance. I, I just want to emphasize how much unexplored space I think there is, even at the most power-optimized cubes. There's a lot of people who, if you ask them, they would say their goal is to play the most powerful cards in their cube. And I see cubes like that often, and there's a couple things I think that totally fit that described goal of playing the most powerful cards that people choose not to play. The best example I could think of is like dedicated burn cards, like make burn an archetype in your cube. I mean, run Lava Spike, run Pillar of Flame, run Price of Progress, run Pyrostatic Pillar, all these cards that don't, don't affect the board. They do nothing but deal damage directly to your opponent. And I mean, even put like Ensnaring Bridge in there, like, you know, Legacy Burn decks play Ensnaring Bridge, which basically says like, shut off all any kind of fair deck that would attack me with creatures that is irrelevant now and just wait for me to draw enough burn spells to kill you. I think that deck, if you put all those cards into like the Magic Online Vintage Cube, I think all those cards would perform very well. I think that deck would be extremely powerful. And the reason you don't see it, I would like to say it's because every designer has individually made the choice of this these cards are like across a line where they're too parasitic they're too narrow they only go with each other and they basically ignore what the opponent's doing and just play this you know count to 20 game and so i want to ignore them i actually think the reason most people ignore them is because they're not present for the most part in the magic online cube i mean the closest we have is stuff like sulfuric vortex and fire blast which 
kind of fit the same definition, but I think are beloved for other reasons. And, you know, Fire Blast can kill creatures, though it doesn't happen very often. So that's a whole suite of cards that even people that profess to be playing power-optimized environments are completely ignoring. And then they look at other sets of cards that they feel somewhat obligated to play because they feel they're the most powerful options in a particular color pair or color, but they don't like them. They complain about the the archetype or the deck, and they say, like, I, I wish that I, this color could do something else. And it's like, it can. The cover could do anything you want. You have, yeah, that's you have the entire exactly, world of magic cards available to you. That's exactly the point that really grinds my gears. Uh, I was talking with somebody on uh, the Discord recently, and they're like, man, I really wish they hadn't printed this specific card because it's just slightly better than this other specific card, which I actually really like the play patterns better. And I was just like, well, we, no one is forcing you to play the better card. Sure, if you're going to a tournament, you want to show up with a better version, but that's not what cube is. Uh, and they came back yeah. and were like, hey, thank you so much for reminding me of that. The cube is actually more fun now that I'm playing with this card that I enjoy more. And that's the kind of, if you feel burdened, unburden yourself. If Please, you don't feel unburden burdened, yourself. continue to enjoy cube as you enjoy it. Everyone yeah. wins. Two in a black, unburden yourself. Discard all those cards in your head that uh, that are causing you to be hung up in this. I mean, and that if you to don't me... feel burdened, unburden has cycling. <laughs> it, it does. <laughs> oh boy, I, I punted so hard at a GP with that card. Every time I look at that card, I just think about how stupid you I feel am. Burdened. It really hurts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've punted so bad against uh, against Eli Cassis too. I sat down. It was my first ever GP, and it was like round three, and I was still in the still two zero, and got paired with Eli Cassis, and. He was like, uh, oh, your first GP? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, uh, that makes you pussy at a big disadvantage. And then I went along <laughs> to punt horribly. Anyway, magic's hard. That interaction you have with that person on the Discord, that to me is the, the damage of the very subtle monolithic language about cube that pops up everywhere. The way people sure. talk about it, where it's like everyone wants the most powerful cards to be printed so they can excitedly jam them in their cube. That, that enthusiasm. And... You know, there is a reason we don't write a cube set review the way that some other people do cube set reviews. I think all of those set reviews assume a certain context. For the most part, it assumes a power-optimized context. And what the set reviews basically serve as is an evaluation of the power of the perceived most powerful cards in the set. And we don't do that because we don't want to contribute to that monolithic nature. But our cube perspectives, the Strix Haven one to be coming out very shortly. Maybe it will be out as soon as this podcast is out. That is our equivalent of that. And even though we are intentionally trying to cast a broad net and catch all kinds of cube designers, and instead of presenting just the most powerful cards as relevant, we want to present all the interesting cards. We see this pop up in our, in, our, in our perspectives too, right? We see that many of our respondents are playing power-optimized cubes. And so very often the cards that have the most testers are the ones that are the most powerful, most interesting cards in the set. So this is a present thing. I, I just think it's something I wish everyone was a little more conscious to just not fall in that trap of assuming all cubes are the same thing because that's what you get. You get people that actually forget like, oh yeah, I don't have to play Questing Beast. My green mid-range decks will be fine if I don't play this word salad of a card that has a bunch of play patterns that uh, that I don't like. Like, I don't have to put this card in my cube. And the same is true of like, you don't have to play white aggro. You don't have to play counterspells. You don't have to play board wipes. You don't have to play Boros cards at all. If you think they're all bad, like don't play Boros cards. That's an option available to you. I, I just wish more people would, as you said, free themselves from the assumptions that a cube has to be this power-optimized thing. And I think a lot of that does come from just the... It comes from people leaning on the collective playtesting of the most powerful cards by the prominent people that write set reviews, like your What Wolfs and what have you, by your Usman Jamils, by uh, just the sort of 
the consensus brain that uh, that is basically talking about the most powerful cards in all the different cube contexts. And I, I want to really strive for this podcast and for Lucky Paper to be a space where we don't just talk about those cards and we talk about everything because, you know, some of the cards that excite me most from this set, I have a combat trick focus cube and this <laughs> Strixhaven is a slam dunk for it. There's so many cards that are just amazing for the combat trick cube on account of the fact that Strixhaven is a instant and sorceries matter set that to me is just as exciting as a, a new powerful planeswalker or whatever in a specific color yeah and just to uh because you, you know this is mostly a podcast about caveats that is an incredible resource and the fact that if you are talking with a group of people that have those same sort of uh design goals of just playing the most powerful cards that does make things a lot easier so it's it's you are so getting much something up I want to cite a couple examples of this, too. We talked a little bit about how I think Burn would be totally viable in Cube, but people don't like it or don't want to play it or don't think it would be viable because they haven't seen other Cubes playing it. Similarly, I think there's a couple other simple examples. So my Bud Magic Cube, my primary Cube, for lack of a better word, is, like I said, a kind of legacy, vintage power-optimized Cube. And one of the biggest deviations I made in the early days from other Cubes that are like mine was moving black away from Reanimator. I had already excluded some combo stuff, and there's a lot of cubes that don't have combo cards like Kiki Jiki or Twin or Storm or whatever. And uh, I, I'd already moved away from those, and really I felt like I hit a point a few years ago where I just wanted to focus on really only fair strategies, and I felt like cheating mana costs dramatically with sneak attacks and natural orders and reanimation spells was not playing on the same axis as all the other decks, and it was leading to play patterns I didn't like. When I decided to cut Reanimator from my cube, it became so much harder for me to figure out how to make my black section functional because I no longer had very many cubes and most of the my peers in the cube design world were not playing a black section that looked like mine anymore. And so we couldn't have conversations about how's this card performing for you? How's this other card working for you? What would you suggest I add? Because their experience was now much more different than my experience was in my own environment. So there is definitely a collective benefit from having a similar cube to other people in the community. But it also is extremely limiting because that play pattern of black when I was playing Reanimator was not serving my play design goals. I think my cube is much better now for having traveled through that valley of having black decks be really bad for a long time and trying to figure out how to make it work. And it's always a work in progress. I'm always looking to improve it. I don't think I'm finished. But that was an example of just, you know, that's one of the biggest deviations in my list from other similar lists and it made it that much harder to make that section functional for me and now you have this like really solid aggressive black strategy that everyone loves and agrees is perfectly balanced with the rest of the environment yeah i'm really grateful to have a play group that's so understanding and uh just loves the deck as much as i do it really helps another example of this that i wanted to cite which i think may be a little more uh known to people is that the uh the green strategy in the mtgo vintage cube for a very long time has been kind of a super ramp strategy I've even heard like LSV and other cube streamers basically say that your green decks want all one drops and two drops and then seven, eight, and nine drops. You don't want anything in between. Like your whole goal is just to ramp out these Eldrazi and Crater Hoof Behemoths and just these cards that are huge haymakers that end the game. And that's the strategy of your deck. And if you can't do that, you will lose. Many other cubes employ a more mid-rangey green strategy where it's like, you know what, maybe let's actually ignore these super expensive cards and cut them and instead play a lot of powerful four, five, and six drops in green that are also equally capable of ending the game. Maybe not quite as fast or maybe not quite as decisively. Maybe there's a little more interplay in it. And that also allows us to cut down on these non-games where either you channel out and all drowsy on turn two and the game's over, or you just can't get to your eighth mana so you never get to cast any of your big threats and your opponent just wins that way. Also, to go further down this spectrum, 
there are more and more and more cubes I've seen lately that I, I don't want to I don't want to call it green aggro, but it's like a a much 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 lower to the ground proactive green mid range deck. I see this mostly in cubes that have a ton of fixing and a ton of gold cards that are really embracing a kind of mid rangey uh, mirror kind of play patterns where the green decks are playing. Tarmogoyfs and you know a lot of these two mana you know and green and something else gold cards like Chevro Bane of Monsters and uh, Voice of Resurgence and all these other kinds of cards and those green decks are also extremely successful at in this in this way so really all three of these green decks could totally be completely viable in any of these power optimized environments right or equally viable to one another I mean they're probably all going to lose to to Storm or whatever but they will be equally competitive against most of the rest of the decks in the archetypes. And even given that, I think people that are just emulating the MTGO cube have this perception that, like, your green has to be playing 7, 8, 9, and 10 drops in order to, to work. Like, those are the most powerful green cards. That if you're not playing them, your green is going to fall flat. When in actuality, it could win with 4 and 5 mana Planeswalkers, or it could win with 2 and 3 mana efficient threats, which green has no shortage of Kazandu Mammoths and Trolls and Tarmogoyfs that can just run over your opponent before they get to develop their board. I think for every other deck and color and color combination, there is an equal amount of unexplored variety that could absolutely hang with the other powerful decks in a a cube that people just haven't explored, aren't willing to explore, are interested in exploring, or don't think are viable and just avoid for that reason. It's just, I, I think people really underestimate the range of possibilities of what could constitute a successful deck in an environment. Can I add one caveat to the qualification, or maybe a qualification to the caveat, and just state super clearly when we're talking about within this space of power-optimized cards, we don't mean literally the 360 most powerful cards. We're talking about just operating in that space of, you know, the the top 1% of magic cards, which is still very, uh, it's a lot of space, but it still has that feel of playing with the most powerful cards from the game. And not to get too pedantic, but like, you hey, that's, we say, don't have a podcast not to get pedantic. Okay, to get very pedantic, you can't say these are the 360 most powerful cards in Magic. It is not possible, <laughs> because all of the cards' power levels is always relative to the rest of the cards that are in the, the draftable set. Like, if you were to say, here are the 360... I looked at all of the 20,000 cards in Magic, you know, I, I ran a bunch of computers, and I had, you know, people do pack-one-pick-ones, and I have 100 million pack-one-pick-ones, and I've identified the 360 cards that are picked highest of all the cards in Magic's history. That collection of cards would not necessarily lead to powerful draftable decks. And you could very easily swap in a card that people were picking lower that now contributes to a much more powerful deck. And that process just goes on forever. And there's a lot of people that are basically trying to seek this ideal, but it's not possible. Like, And you could swap out your entire green section that was you know, the most powerful green cards and with all new set of most powerful green cards. And that deck could perform just as well. Which one's more powerful then? It, it, you, you can't... You can't say it is. It is impossible to know. So, all right. Like, so, I think you said context matters. So that fills out my lucky paper bingo card for this episode. Context. We can have a lot of people uh, ringing our little bingo bell uh, on this particular episode. <laughs> to summarize that point, <laughs> Cube is not a monolith. That's what we all love about Cube for the most part. Unless you just like to grind the MTGO Cube and you do want, that's the only Cube you care about playing, then yeah, sure. I mean, Cube to you is just that Cube. Do your thing. You're probably not listening to this podcast if that's if that's your, your goals. For most of us, Cube is great because it's a broad format. And I, I would love to just entreat people to have a little more context and care with how you refer to Cube as a format. So we 
can gently eschew this monolithic idea of cube always being the most powerful cards because I think it would free up a lot of people to design more diverse kinds of formats and discover that lots of things that they assumed might not be viable because they hadn't seen them in other people's lists are actually totally viable and work just fine. I want to get on my soapbox a little bit. I'm feeling a little spicy today, Anthony. I'm ready to say some things that are going to offend people. All right. Put your soapbox on your soapbox. While we're, while we're being, you know, tone policing everybody, I also want to say everyone should stop calling cards boring or interesting or some, you know, variation of those terms. Stop it. Get some help. I see these words bandied around a lot. I'm sure I've been guilty of, of doing this myself a lot of times. I'm not always as careful with my language as I should be. So, you know, don't at me with screenshots of Discord or whatever. I'm sure I've made this mistake too. But in, in, in the sake of all of us getting better, saying a card is boring or interesting really doesn't mean anything other than you like it or you don't like it. And why I think it's subtly toxic to, to use words like interesting or uninteresting or boring or whatever is because that has an air of objectivity. When you say a card is boring, it doesn't sound like you're saying, this card bores me. You're saying some fundamental attribute of this card is boring. And the way you've put that statement naturally will rub against anybody if it disagrees and finds that card interesting. Every time I see somebody say, this card's boring or interesting, I just translate in my head to, I like this card, I don't like this card. I think if we all just said, we liked cards or didn't like cards, instead of leaning on these words, it would make our biases and subjectivity much more transparent. I'm just saying... I don't like questing beasts, you know? It's not any objective thing wrong with the card. It's just not a card I like, so I'm not going to play it in my, in my green section. And I wish everyone would just embrace the inherent subjectivity instead of trying to appeal to some ideal uh, that is a- above and beyond their subjective stance on a card. To be fair, boring and interesting is still a lot better than good and bad in terms of Yes, good and bad is, 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 the, is, the worst, is the worst of all. That, that is much worse. Good and bad is not actually subjective, but it's dependent on so much context that it is... I think actively destructive to good conversation to uh, to try and bring that up. I always see it. It leads to so much friction in conversations with strangers on Discord, Reddit, Twitter, wherever you're talking about Cube. There's so much friction that is caused by saying you think a card is boring or saying a card is interesting to you when somebody else might disagree. The way you present that sounds so objective if you don't just say, I like this card, I don't like this card, which I think is just so much easier to say. Just do that. The English language is just really problematic. I, I really enjoy some passive voice. Yeah, it's a rough language. It's, it's you know, we're, we're stuck with it for the most part. I guess it's not stuck. We can land it. Wait, should we uh, start an Esperanto Cube podcast? Wow. Yes. Now that checks a lot of box on my Anthony bingo card. <laughs> I, I, I just, Esperanto Cube podcast is going gonna, is gonna to be right down your alley, I think. I don't know if I have the mental energy for this at this time, but something I've always wanted to do Maybe I should save this for for later, but basically find somebody who doesn't speak English, and I conveniently do not speak any language they speak already, and try and learn Esperanto together and see how long it takes for the two of us to to figure out how to communicate. This would be a fun YouTube series. This isn't content. This is about personal growth. Dude, we live live under capitalism. Everything is content. If it's not content, it's a waste of time and resources. We got to be constantly uh, capitalizing on all of our hobbies. All right, I think that really closes the loop on this one. (laughs) Anyway, my last spicy take for the day, Anthony. Probably my spiciest take of all. Wizards, if you're listening. Gavin Verhey, if you're listening. Mauro, if you're listening. And I presume you are. Hi, Mauro. Please don't try to make cards for Cube. Just don't. We're happy. We're happy over here 
chowing down on the seconds from standard and, and regular limited and all the other constructed formats you have in mind, don't think about cube when you're designing cards. I actively don't want wizards to design cards for cube. Do you think this is a totally wild? I've, I've said this to other people and they, they think I'm crazy for not like, why wouldn't I? It's my favorite format. Why wouldn't I want wizards to make cards for that format? How do you feel about this, Anthony? Do you want wizards to make cards with cube in mind? I see where you're coming from. I think I want to process this more. I feel like the easy the easy out for this is that unlike a competitive format where you are sort of obligated, you're priced into playing the best cards, like we've been saying, if you don't like the, the cards they print that are cube-specific, you don't have to run them. So in that sense, right. whatever Wizards does can't really affect cube, except for the the single instance which was the change in the companion rule. So I'm not that concerned about it, but I do think I, I get the core of what you're saying, which is that, you know, I think, for example, Commander used to be much more about solving a puzzle and sort of repurposing and exploring this this area of cards that didn't really have a home previously. And now Commander feels a lot less like solving a puzzle because they just print a legend that, here here's a new Commander set, here's eight legends that each say, go out and find all of the X cards. And it, it feels less charming in a way. It really does feel like somewhere there's a spreadsheet of all the things cards can care about and all of the color identities, and there's just <laughs> checkboxes in them. A checkbox as they try for, make... is there a legendary that cares about this? Right, yes. and they just yeah. try and make legendary creatures that would support all those decks. And look, I'm not here to drag on EDH. I, I've played a lot of EDH. It was the thing that made me fall in love with Magic. I, I think it has way more things I like about it than that I don't like about it. And as a fellow casual format that's not doesn't have an optimized meta like you know cons- other constructed formats i have a lot of affection for it okay how about this i think that wizards absolutely should make a cube product but uh come talk to me first i'll tell you i'll tell you what to do <laughs> yeah uh, actually i change my wizards you can make a cube product you just gotta hire anthony and i to do it hire lucky paper lucky paper partnership cube product look here's here's my thing i think one of the most fun things about cube is that everybody gets to have their own take on it and while you're right I am more insulated in cube from decisions that Wizards makes that I don't agree with because I don't have to play with other cards. I can only I can just play with the cards that I want in my own cubes. That doesn't mean that introducing cube specific cards or cards that have been intentionally designed for cube. I, here's the effect I think it would have. I think it would one further cement this monolithic idea of what cube is for Wizards to kind of go on patching what they perceive to be holes in like the power optimized vintage cube category like let's give black a really good four drop or whatever like going through and trying to do that i think would just further cement the idea that cube is this monolithic thing and when they say print cards for cube they what they mean is print cards for that monolithic idea of cube they don't mean for everybody else designing cubes because cube is inherently everything any card could go in cube that's that's the beauty of cube and so i i think naturally, over the course of making cards for every other set and every other restriction, every other limitation, every other audience they have to think about, they will inherently make no uh, no end of interesting cards for me to use in my own cube design. And the reason I want them to not make them for cube specifically is because the only thing that could possibly mean is making it for that monolithic idea of cube, which I have no interest in codifying any further. What's more, well, it wouldn't affect my cubes because I probably wouldn't run a lot of these cards they would design with cube in mind if they ended up looking like I expect them expect they might look, looking like the, the commander cards designed for commander look, for example. I spend as much time, probably more time, talking with other cube designers about cube than I do playing my own cube. And 
those cards being printed would absolutely affect my experience of the format in that regard. There would now be a whole chunk of cards that a lot of people will be running, people will be talking about, that were essentially designed to pander to what they perceive to be the needs of power-optimized cubes. And I think the only effect it would have would be slightly homogenizing the conversation around cube in a way that I think is counterproductive to the beauty and depth and diversity of cube. Also, I am very clearly just a hipster. I don't want to be pandered to. I want to sift through the like, you know, counterculture and the things that are not popular and find the stuff that is special to me because it, it's me express that I'm the real Holden Caulfield. I'm the authentic one. I'm going to go find the things that are especially unique to me. I'm just a hipster, okay? So that's, that's my take. Don't print cards for cube. Don't That's do very it. big of you to say. I think you're. I think I'm coming around to your perspective specifically because I'm thinking about Commander Legends, which I think the way they designed it, I, I'm I'm confident that they made the right choice for their needs, like the the way that they needed to captivate a certain audience, which maybe would have been skeptical skeptical had they designed the product in different ways. But it did absolutely change the narrative. And now, whenever somebody thinks about a draftable Commander environment, which Guess what? That's actually very close to Cube already. They talk about organizing in a certain way, which I think ultimately, like, if you were already enfranchised and willing to have a draftable commander experience, that wouldn't be the best way to do it. But because they needed to make it very accessible, uh, they had to do it a certain way that's really cemented a lot of the the framing and narrative about it, which is exactly, I think, what you're describing that you're worried about with the bigger Cube sphere. When anybody looking at magic from a whole refers to Cube, they can't be referring to the whole of Cube because it is too big it is too much of everything they only can be referring to that monolithic idea of it and that is what i want to uh to fight my little war against i want to go to war against the windmills of the monolithic idea of cube as power optimized format and just open everyone's eyes to the beauty of what can be the combat trick cube right. the degenerate micro cube and the turbo cube and the mono black cube and just playing at any other power level where you can make the decks behave exactly as you want them to behave relative to one another, which uh, that's the beauty and that's the beauty and the, the agony and the ecstasy of cube design to me. I mean, you said we can't talk about cube as a whole, but I can see the whole thing on my screen right now. <laughs> there we go. That was, that is the cube map. I've spent, I've spent so much time just scrolling around this guy. I, you know, I, this is, I gotta say, Anthony, I'm a little self-conscious. This is not the tone I normally want this show to have. And regular listeners will know that we don't we don't spend a lot of time eh, complaining about what other people are doing and, you know, focusing on little inner circle minutia like like word choice and stuff. But uh, this is a big thing that comes up a lot. And I'm, I'm glad to have at least recorded like a canonical. Here's our take on the, the breadth and the depth of the cube world and why we shouldn't be trying to pigeonhole it to just most powerful cards. But uh, yeah, this is not I don't expect to record a lot of whiny episodes like this in the future so i hope it was tolerable dear listener next week tune in for fun happy talk about magic the gathering that's it for this episode of lucky paper radio thank you to dj james nassie for producing all of our music thank you to wizards of the coast for making the magic cards that are not specifically for cube thank you for listening and thank you anthony for talking about magic with me happy to do it andy Ada Lovelace. Ada Lovelace, Ada Lovelace. If you say Ada Lovelace three times into a mirror, then you get past the tech support. <laughs> you get past the tech support <laughs> hurdle. And you get handed to somebody that knows what they're talking about and, uh, and trusts and respects you. Oh, please let it be true. <laughs>